everybody, whether you're the president of a company or the paperboy, everybody has the exact same amount of time. You and I both have 24 hours a day. No more, no less. The question is, what do you do with your time? Real quick, my friends, go get my new book. It's called The Power to Publish. And it's at the top of the page of zbooks.co at the link, my new book. And it's going to help you with all of your self-publishing needs. Okay, back to that podcast. Welcome to ZBooks Successful Authors Podcast. And with me today, I have the honor to interview an award-winning author of the book called No Tougher Duty. And wait until you hear his job description. With me today, I have retired gunnery sergeant, Chris Busler. Howdy, Chris, how you doing? Doing wonderful, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great, and I, it's raining here in Germany. So, um, and you are in Ohio? Yes, sir. Cool, and um, okay, I kind of preempted you, so what, is or was your job description in the Marines? Um, originally, I was a uh, 0311 rifleman. I was an okay. Engineer. But uh, my secondary job is which I got activated to go into Iraq for uh, a few of my deployments was I was a mortuary affairs Marine. Right. Um, so, yeah, that was back in the days um, when. Uh, World War II, it was a job that they used a lot, obviously, um, and it was a reserve function in, in the early 1990s when I joined my Marine unit, my Marine Reserve unit in Ohio, and, uh, and I, honestly, I didn't choose that as a primary job. It was kind of given to me because the unit that I joined, that was its, um, it was its experimental unit. It was, it was kind of a function that they just were handed to. I never thought I'd ever go to war. So I was like, okay, all right, well, I'll just stick with this unit. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, I was reading your book, but um, Mortuary Affairs Marine, that sounds kind of like some kind of gothic role for Johnny Depp or something, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. <laughs> yeah. So you're, you're delivering mail on the streets of Ohio, and then your boss comes up, and you thought he was going to shit can you or something. Yes, he was going to try to go up here and give me a hard time. Um, yeah, he was a guy over at the uh, at the post office that everybody just loved to hate. Uh, he, he liked to pick on guys and, and try to stress people out, make them work harder, uh, make them work faster and stuff like that. So uh, I thought he was there to give me a hard time. There's a, an emotional part of your story where your dad has to uh, give you the cell phone to make the call to your sergeant or what was it? Yes. Um, my dad also worked for the post office too. And um, I usually try to work at a route that was close to him. Uh, so that way we can eat lunch together and stuff like that. And I knew he had a cell phone on him. So when, when my supervisor came up and said, Hey, your Marine unit just called and that they're looking for you, they, um, you, they need you to give you a call back. And so at the time, I didn't have my cell phone and forgot it at home. So I said, hey, my dad has his. Let's go over there and, and use his. So they, we thought it was a great idea. And, um, and I got to use his to call into the unit. And um, 
it, it, this is the phone call that all military parents fear. Yeah. Um, my dad was a three-time uh, Vietnam War veteran. Um, in fact, that's how he met my mom. Um, my mom uh, is, a, uh, is from Thailand. He was stationed over there. And, um, and so I, I, I usually say I, I'm a direct product of the Vietnam war and so, yeah, he, he retired out of the air force as well. Right on. He did 23 years and, and he knew exactly what that phone call was about. Oh. And you could see that it, it had taken, uh, it really surprised him, but, and you could see all his, his fears just manifested and it, really it really took him for a loop what year was this that was in 2002 so it's just ramping up to the big yeah, one yeah, huh? yeah. it is uh just a few days before christmas oh. and and we are just about to um we had new things were were up but we weren't really sure that it would really happen you know, because there was talk about Iraq and, you know, for years and years and years, we were sending people over there, check, trying to find weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and we just had a group of, a big group of Marines who showed up over at the local Air Force base that I lived right outside of. Yeah. And, and the, all the newspapers had said that they were there to practice for Iraq. And, but I never thought it would really come around. It was something that you thought about, that it could happen. But in reality, I was a reservist. Mm -hmm. And it, it, the likelihood of me going to war was very slim that I thought until we got the phone call. That's what I was going to ask. You were, you're, you're, um, you're a reservist because you, you had your job at the post office. And I, I was reading in your book, too, how they were, they were practicing uh, buzzing uh, the buildings and with helicopters and uh, uh, inserting, you know, special forces and stuff. And right in the middle of Ohio, how was that? Yep, right. They, they would take off from, from uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and they would fly all over the city. Hmm. And then they would have a pre-designated old uh school uh, at the time it, it was called uh, roosevelt uh, school it was an old depression era school but it was it was cleared out there was nobody in there but it was in the middle of the city and they would go fly above it with their their helicopters and they would fast rope down so basically what they would do is throw these big huge ropes like you would have back in gym class back in yeah, yeah. you know in school and you had to climb up with the same thickness and everything you throw that out and all of a sudden you have all these guys uh jump out of the helicopter slide down the rope and then they would secure the roof then they would move on from there and what are all the passerbys doing and the civilians or uh, i don't know because um <laughs> i would guess that they would would shut down the highway during that because the highway was literally, you could see the high, the high school from, from, the, uh, from the highway, but um, I didn't know. I was working for the post office, and I was always working. <laughs> so, um, the, but the differences between the Air Force over here at this, at where I live, mm -hmm. and, and what the Marine Corps, what I was trained in the Marine Corps, is that we don't have helicopters out here. Hmm. And so we have, you know, you have the uh, C-141s, the huge, gigantic airplanes. Um, you know, at the time, you'd see C-5s, gigantic, huge 
really, really huge airplanes. Yeah. And, but those guys would take off and then they'd fly high among the clouds, can barely even hear them. But yeah. these helicopters are, they would l- literally rattle the windows and, and you know <laughs> that it, it's, it's like a, a whole fleet of motorcycles heading down the highway, yeah. you know, kind of get your attention. What is it, a big Chinook? What is it? No, they were, uh, those particular ones there uh, that I remember were CH-53s, ah. which East stallions, and they would have uh, CH-46s. Okay which are the sea knights they they are the shorter version of the chinooks the dual uh, okay. related ones uh they're designed to go on ships so they uh, the army has a ch 47 they're bigger ch 46 and ch 43 huh uh, ch 53 ah okay getting that stuff down there which one's the chinook um the chinook style one would um that is the, actually the ch 47 and ah, that okay. The uh, the army's version, uh, ours is the C Knight, which is the CH forty six. Awesome! Doesn't that have the world speed record for helicopters? I don't know. Um, I, know I would fast. think I would think that maybe um, the the V the, well the twenty two the the Osprey would yeah. have something like that. But the Osprey is kind of a, a hybrid, yeah, because uh, yeah. they turn from a, a rotor tilt aircraft. Mm-hmm. which you know they can in- insert people by going up and down just like a regular helicopter but yeah. they turn their their blades towards the front and then then they act like an airplane with really huge props those things are scary they, they just want to chop up people you uh, know yeah. <laughs> so then um, you I, went to oh sorry go ahead oh I, I was like i know that they had uh, a, a really big long period of time where they were still trying to figure that out yeah. Um, back in the 90s, you'd hear about those things crashing all the time. Mm-hmm. But I think that they figured out how to fly them now, and they've got all the mechanics worked out. I hope so. I hope so. Um, okay, so what was your first stop, Kuwait? Yes. At the time, um, we, we stopped in Kuwait, and it was during the build-up phase. Mm-hmm. Um, we landed there, and at the time, it was, we were taken out to a place called Camp Coyote. And right. Camp Coyote right. was a huge, gigantic area that was wide open that had uh, multiple little bases all around. And all those little bases were little, like little, uh, uh, we'll call them Bob Ford operating bases. You know, they would have these little areas that were named after Marine Corps battles. Mm-hmm. So there was Camp Tarawa, there was Camp Iwo Jima. Um, uh, Bougainville, all these other ones, but all the areas on on in between those camps on Camp Coyote was just an open desert, <laughs> just surrounded by huge, you know, barbed wire and stuff like that. And yeah, it, it was really, really massive. I got out of the Air Force just in time to miss the first Kuwait war, man. I'm thankful for that. <laughs> so tell us about your, your Brazilian jiu-jitsu there. Uh, it was kind of funny part of your story. Uh, Gunny oh, yeah. Ballantyne, or what was that? Yeah, Gunnery Sergeant Ballantyne, he was our, one of our favorite uh, staff NCOs. Mm-hmm. He was just an all-around badass. <laughs> he was a swim instructor. He was, uh, we used to call PT God, you know, his physical training God. Basically he was a, a dude that you just couldn't stop. He, he was a good runner. He was a weightlifter. He was a Brazilian jujitsu 
um, you know, back in when it was in its in its infancy, basically, you don't see the stuff that you see nowadays on UFC and yeah. all the stuff you see on TV. But yeah, you know, back then, um, he was doing this stuff, and and even though that, yeah, he was an all round badass, and he was a, a huge smart guy, and the thing that we respected him the most is that he was a guy that really genuinely cared about us. Um, and I thought he just choked you guys out for fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that was just out of play, you know, um, okay. none of us, nobody would ever want to try to challenge him because, <laughs> you know, he was just as serious because he was a chess player too. He <laughs> was just as serious as he was at chess as he was at, at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, yeah. and and you could see his wheels turning if you ever was ever playing him in chess. It's just like you know, mm-hmm. nobody ever wanted to embarrass themselves that way <laughs> with, with trying to deal with him. But yeah, he was just an outstanding guy, and he had our respect from day one. Right on, that's cool. And that was in um, where were you, Camp Coyote, or where was that? Yeah, it was at Camp Coyote. Was, at the time, it was Camp Iwo Jima, okay. uh, part of Camp Coyote. And then, and then there was this Black Hawk Hilo crash, and that was kind of your first, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, it deployment was in your job or whatever. Right, because, you know, yeah, we got activated. We felt lucky to be activated in time where our country needed us. Being reservists, we never thought that we would ever get activated. Hmm. Um, Yes, we, at the, yeah, being naive and everything, we wanted to go to war, but we really didn't know what war really was. Hmm. Uh, we always trained for it, but we never knew intimately. It was still a romantic dream. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, we trained for everything, and, but nothing really prepares you for the real stuff until yeah. you're actually in it. And that helicopter crash was the our first exposure to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, just a crash. It was, they were out practicing maneuvers in the middle of the night, and there was a sandstorm that kicked up. And I don't know exactly how it happened, uh, but the helicopter was too low, and they went down, and, and four guys had got killed in there, uh, four uh, Army soldiers. Mm-hmm. And um, we, were, we were brought out to help the uh the t the ntsb the national transportation safety board mm-hmm. helped them do the the investigation we were basically their labor to go out there and help them work the the crash site and it was definitely a wake-up call because i we were working off of world war ii manuals <laughs> nobody decided to ever update the manuals of since World War II, basically, we know. And so we go all the way through the Korean War and the Vietnam War. And, you know, and technology uh, progresses on. And so you're being introduced to all these different designs and, and metals and composite stuff and alloy that. And, and so the literature that we knew was seriously old. Yeah. And and this the the vehicles that they had back in World War II is not like how they had it here. So yeah. all of our diagrams that we were working off of that we had thought about and imagined, um, 
they didn't even put together how a, an air crash would be with a helicopter because this thing was in millions of pieces. Huh. Yeah. And, and um, how do you use a screwdriver to tell if something <laughs> human remains or not? Um, so when working with these NTSB guys, and this is something that was not taught in any part of our training, and it was a good thing, a lucky windfall, that we got to hook up with these guys because then they showed us um, that in, a, in the crash that requires, well, has a fire, you'll have all these bits and pieces, and you'll have guys that are, are burned up pretty bad. You can't tell, even though it's hard to wrap your mind around. You, it's hard to really tell what is what. What is uh, a part of a, uh, of a, of a person? Or if it's silicon from a, from the crash of plastics, melted metal, um, and so it, it's it's everything's burned up and everything's black char, and so basically what you do is what they showed us is that you can use a, an everyday common screwdriver, and you can tap the the item, and and you can basically it's like basically if you hold up a penny, okay. Mm-hmm. You hold up a penny and you hit it, it's going to feel metallic, even though at the time working with the crash, you can't tell what it is. Mm-hmm. So, but you tap it, you can feel that it feels like what metal would feel like or what mm-hmm. plastic would feel like, a melted plastic, whatever. So if it so, goes thump, it's, it's human. Right. But if you pick up a bone yeah. and then you tap it, it has a totally different makeup. It has a totally different feel with it it feels like it it is biological basically it's it, 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 you know in your off time pick if you're if you uh eat like say a steak or or, or a, a chicken or something and you have the bone and tap the bone you'll feel the differences between something that's plastic and something that's not yeah so tell uh, us more about this process so this is your first brush with death and then you it was the Take first time, it was the very first time it was my uh, working a scene, but it wasn't really the first time we, we had brush with death. We worked over in morgues and stuff, helping uh, as far as part of our training. But what you see inside of a sterile environment mm-hmm. um, is totally different from what you see out on, on the battlefield or in the yeah. service. So because how did you deal with that? Um, that helicopter crash, I would say was easy to detach yourself because it was, it was very hard to really associate with anything. Mm-hmm. You know, even though it was a wake up call and it was a, it was something that really were like, wow, this is something that we never ever thought that we would ever see. And it's something that we would never ever do. And it was kind of. I don't know. It was huge. Mm, yeah. You know, for something I was lost in words, you know. Um, but it didn't really gross me out. The only thing that really, at the time, that really struck up many of my curiosity, my morbid curiosity, was that we would have these huge patches that look like burned sugar. And I had no idea what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of come off like burned glass. And so we would chip at it. And when we chipped at it, we would find bone and stuff like that. And I would, I brought it up to my, 
guy that was working with and he goes, Oh yeah, that's burned blood. Um, when blood gets heated up in a, in a hot fire, it bubbles and it comes like basically the, the stuff in the bottom of your, your oven, Wow, uh, you know, or your grill when you go cook out. And I had no idea. Um, because nobody ever taught us that. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's the part that kind of made me go, Ooh, yeah. you know? yeah. uh, but it wasn't really until the war had kicked off mm-hmm. and, and we were in the middle of all the fighting and, and all that kind of stuff where I got thrusted onto something in a situation that really took my breath away. And it was kind of a kick to the stomach. Yeah. So then tell us more about this job or this process. You, uh, uh, what do you call it? Accompany the uh, deceased then from the scene and then what? Okay. Um, are we talking about peacetime or? or uh, no, no, like in war, like you're. Okay. During the invasion, um, our, our communication, our, no, I want to say communications, our lines of supply was basically you carry it to wherever we're going. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so basically, if we got in a fight, now you got to look at the time of war, we had no bases. Mm-hmm. We we're living on the road and we're traveling at all times. We live in a convoy. So the, the idea was if somebody got killed, mm-hmm. they would, we would have to strap them on top of our vehicles and keep on going. We were not to stop at any, for any cost. We would keep on going. Um, my particular team, my platoon was broken down into three teams. Um, we were the lucky ones as being that we did not um, see a lot of the remains that came through. Um, my other two teams were the ones that received uh, all, the, all the huge casualties. We yeah. were the yeah. ones that were kind of floating around between whoever was cycled to go into the next fight. Um, so we would go in between one task force to another task force, but we just got lucky enough where we didn't have to handle a lot of the remains. So it, we, we got all the way up until we went to a place called al which was at the time called Camp Chesty. Mm-hmm. And um, we had married up with one of our teams. So we, we invaded Iraq on, I believe, March the 19th. Over there was March 9th. I think over here was March the 20th, but over there was March the 19th, I believe. Yeah. It was really, really late, really, really late in the, in the morning. Uh, I mean, really, really late at night. And, um, and so we had did the initial invasions. First of all, the first bombs hit and everything. We, we did the, the run through southern Iraq all the way up. And, but we didn't see anybody get killed outside of the Iraqis, uh, the, the Iraqi deceased, their soldiers. But our, ours at the time was our, our priority was our guys. Mm-hmm. So we got all the way up to, I would say, mid-April before we got to handle any of, any of our guys. And that part really blew me away. And I wasn't emotionally prepared for it. Tell me uh, about that. You know, you go to war and you go through and you you practice for all of the tactical side of it and you prepare yourself physically so you're physically prepared for it. And, you you know, you go through and you see the chaplain and we have uh, we would pray about it and 
you know, help give us uh, strength and all that. And, and uh, so you feel that you're spiritually, but nobody could ever emotionally prepare you for something that's basically the, um, something that's totally different from yeah. anybody. You, you can't prepare for it. And, um, and, and when those guys, we helped them come off the helicopter and we carried him into the, the tent where all the surgeons were. And you can hear them working on, you can hear the frustration on, on those, um, on the doctor's voices when they're yelling back and forth and, and trying to get the attention of the guys uh, who were, we had brought in. It was a scene that was heart-wrenching because I felt powerless. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as you tried to prepare for the situations, it was a moment that I felt totally helpless. Yeah. And I wanted to help them so bad, but I didn't know how to. And it wasn't really in my place to help them. I mean, my job was I was a mortuary affairs guy. Yeah. And and it was a job that you never ever want to do. And that was the first night I ever had to do it. And mm-hmm. I can say the, the the easiest way I can say it sucked. Yeah, yeah. So, but this was your job. Right. It was, you know, we had to, we had to basically push all of those emotions aside mm-hmm. the best we could. And, and we had to just basically do our work. And so we, we all, both of our units, both of my team and the other team they were married up with at Camp Chesty, um, we both worked on those, those three guys. And, and it just happened to be that, the, one of the guys that we were working on was one of the guys that I was carrying um, off the helicopter. And I, just three hours before I was kind of giving them words of encouragement, like, Hey man, you know, just hang in there. You're, you're safe now. You know, you're good to go. And three hours later you're working on him and you're processing him and you're going through his pockets or, or going through the paperwork and, mm. um, you know, yeah. and they're still warm and all that kind of stuff. And it, it's something that really sticks with you. Yeah, it's crazy, huh? I mean, I don't. I've been to the morgue, but um, never been to combat like that, and I don't. I don't think I want to. <laughs> uh, it's it's something that at the time when I was a kid, you know, I've always romanticized about it, and hmm. you know, it was always like, man, that would be you know awesome to go do something like that. And I could tell you, after three tours in, in combat, yeah, um, it's something that I don't wish on anybody. No, no, no. So, uh, total basic beginner question here, total newbie okay. question. How, in, in that case, um, relating to your job, how do you honor the dead? Um, basically, when I got down to my third deployment, okay, um, I had already, on my first deployment, I was there for the, for the initial invasion, and our casualties were very light at the time. We really didn't know what to do with those, those three guys over at Camp Chesty. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was somebody's idea. And because at the time, the casualties were brand new. And somebody came up with the idea that we should say a prayer for them. And they did. And we did. Um, then we went home. I volunteered to go again. And this time on my second tour, I got hooked up with an infantry battalion. My job was to train Iraqi police. I ended up uh, getting blown up. I was one of the very first casualties 
Yeah, tell us about that. I saw your in your YouTube interview, not your YouTube interview, but in in your uh, your book tour, the first video you were you 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 were standing there checking out a car, and then what? Right, right, right. So basically, what would happen was I was hooked up with this infantry battalion, and and we were working into we're walking into a city, mm-hmm. and uh, we're walking in, and my job was to to go and assess the Iraqi police, see what they needed as far as equipment and training, and and, and check out their facilities and stuff. But at the same time, I was supposed to provide an overwatch. Um, uh, basically be on top of a building and watch the rest of our patrol go down and, 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 uh, and if they, we see anybody moving around, we're supposed to call them in and say, Hey, you got bad guys on the left side, 200 meters out, you know, what, whatever, basically be their eyes and ears in the middle of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and so working up, walking our way up on this road, I, see this car that broke our formation and at the time i was like what's what's going on with the why aren't the guys turning this vehicle away um and so they let them come into our formation um we're walking on either sides of the road walking in into the city and i checked out the car as he was passing by i walked up and he slowly drove past me i waved at him he waved at me i'm looking in the back of his car to see if i could see anything like explosives ammunition you know uh, yeah. machine guns all that kind of stuff and i waved at him he waved at me and next thing you know he touched his dashboard and it, all of a sudden he just called this Boop. and i never heard the blast i just felt it i felt the concussion and all this dirt rushing past me all this dirt just going from behind me and, and pushing me forward. And it felt like my, uh, I just got hit really hard by a truck. <laughs> um, and I opened my eyes and I don't know if I got knocked out. I don't know what happened, but I was no longer on that road. I was off the road, down an embankment. My head was in the mud. And, and, uh, and I looked around and, I thought that, okay, I need to be away from this area because I could see a bunch of buildings to my right and the and we got hit right next to a goat market. I could see people picking up goats and throwing them in the cars and trying to get out of the way of the ensuing crossfire. And I didn't know Were where I was. Were they afraid of you? Um, they just know if they're going to start shooting and the bunch of civilians were in the middle of all this fighting, they don't want to get caught in the middle of all that fighting. And so I figured if they're going to start, if the bad guys were going to start shooting, I had no cover. So once I crawled up to the road, I found out that um, it wasn't the car that blew up. It was a telephone pole I was standing right next to that had blown up. And it was um, a 120 millimeter mortar or something? Yeah, it was a really, really huge uh, mortar round. That's, about, that's big as a, a, as a tank shell. Yep. And um, it picked me up and threw me off the road. Um, and my radio luckily took the brunt of the hit mm-hmm. and gunner started ballantine was with me on that patrol and um so there was a bunch of us that were wounded from it and so i got a part of my calf blown off mm-hmm. uh still got shrapnel on my leg uh, right next to my femoral artery in my on my left leg i got a like minor traumatic brain injury stuff like that but pretty light con- considering of the circumstances 
And uh, you, another guy. you kind of com uh, you kind of said that if you were just one inch to the left. Yep, yep. If my why? leg is one more inch to the left. Uh, it would have because it's it's hit right next to uh, where my knee joint is, right gotcha. below where my knee joint. If it was been one more inch to the left, it would have went straight through my my leg, right where the um, the, the bone of my leg, hmm. right below my knee, and I would have lost my leg. Um, and then but, you were talking into your handset. Right. And I'm talking in my handset and, and I was dazed, but everything in my mind was, okay, you need to keep, uh, keep going. Right. My, my instinct was to, to tell our, our basically a, a situation report saying, Hey, this is what's going on. This is what happened, you know, prepare yourself. But in my mind, I was trying to communicate with the company of other Marines that were still at the dam that we had just left from. And I shouldn't have been talking to them. I should have been talking to the, uh, the Marines that were based on our overwatch waiting for us in the desert Yeah, outside the town. And I was like, kilo, kilo, uh, you know, sit rep over. And I wasn't getting anybody over, you know, over the thing. And so I thought maybe my radio got turned down or got turned off when I got blown off the road. And so I asked our, our major, you know, as he walked past me, I was like, sir, can you check out my radio? Uh, I think it got switched off when I, when I got blown down off the road and he goes, all right. He, he opens my pack and he goes, Oh, here's your problem. He takes the rest of my handset <laughs> and uh, he throws it over my shoulder and he goes, your, uh, your your handset's gone and your, your <laughs> antenna which was on the on the other side of my on my back right next to my ear basically because your antenna is gone too uh he goes you're <laughs> awfully lucky marine you got this you got metal sticking out of your pack uh like a yeah, foot yeah. long yeah, um, yeah you're awfully lucky to be alive marine <laughs> so you get blown up thrown right. 40 yards you get out of the ditch and then you're talking into the headset or handset and nobody wants to help you. You're probably all bloody too, huh? Yeah. Um, I was more dazed than, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I was angry. Yeah. You really don't realize how angry you can get, even though you know you're here to help people mm -hmm. and you're trying to provide security so they can have a better life and everything and all of a sudden you're like these assholes are just tried killing me <laughs> you know? um but um the funny thing about gunny ballantyne was is that he had um i did not know this until uh, a year ago he sent me a picture of what was left of my antenna which got blown off my back mm -hmm. and it got embedded in his flak jacket across the road from me Oh, so wow. yeah, so he has a piece of of my radio from from back then. Cool, but yeah, I was trying to egg on a fight with the bad guys, you know, call them all sorts of names and everything, you know, because I I wanted to find the guys who did this to us. How dare them try to kill us? Yeah. we're here to help you guys. Did you get to find them? No, no, we yeah. didn't. No, they did. Um, what happened was that they called in are the guys I should have been calling the, the, uh, and they called in and, and they drove up, they put us in the back of the vehicle and they slowly got us out of there while everybody who did not get hit inside, or if they got hit, it was minor. 
um, bunch of shrapnel or whatever, you know, just basically put a Band-Aid on it, keep on going. Um, those guys, basically, that's what they did. They stood right back up, uh, went back into formation, and they kept up with the mission. And, uh, and what, what the really sucky part was, even though it was out of my control and out of, totally out of my power, I felt guilty for getting blown up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I wanted to be there with my guys. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be part of the team. This was the, I was here to be with them. I volunteered to be there with all my buddies and, and to, to do this job. And I felt like I was mm -hmm. taken out of the fight before mm -hmm. I had a chance to do my job. So was that the end of your tour or did they patch that you up and send you back in? Tour. And that was the end. <laughs> So that was um, that was third battalion, fourth Marines. Mm -hmm. now, now these guys were part of our task force during the invasion of Iraq. They were part of the group that helped bring down the statue in Ferdo Square, um, and um, they were known to be highly aggressive, um, just pure sheer, just beer badasses. And you know, in the Marines, they had a reputation of it, and and I believed everything. Um, so when, when I was back home, I was getting all my, my surgeries, my skin grafts, um, and all that stuff. Fallujah, the first part of Fallujah, the April push had kicked up yep. and I came home and I was on convalescent leave and I did not want to focus with the war. I wanted to make up for lost time with my family. So I just kept my, my television off and, you know, didn't pay attention to the news. That's the best thing to do anyway. Right, right. My focus was reconnecting with my, my family. And so, you know, we would go out to the zoo and go out to all this kind of stuff. And, and uh, I got sent back to, after my convalescent leave, I went back to 29 Palms, California. And oh, yeah. it was, now next thing you know, I'm sitting around in, in the barracks with all these guys now who are coming back off the battlefield wounded. And I found out that the, some of the guys that I was just with were killed in Fallujah. Ah. Um, and, and it really was kind of a kick to my guts because I, I you know, yep. something that you don't prepare for is taking casualties, mm -hmm. especially at the beginning when, you know, it was a brand new thing and like, how we got all this equipment and, you know, there's body armor and, you know, we shouldn't be taking casualties, but yet we are. And Fallujah was a bigger fight than what we thought it was going to be. And, um, and, and, and it was something I wasn't emotionally prepared for to know that a bunch of the, my guys that I was just ba basically breaking bread with are now deceased. And I'm now, I was with a bunch of guys hanging out and drinking with the guys at night that were there with them. And they were telling the stories of all this stuff. Huh. So fast forward to my third deployment, which was a year later. Uh, I volunteered to go back over, but this time I was in charge of, of mortar affairs operations for all around a place called Altakadam Air Base, which was right outside of Fallujah yep. and right outside of a place in 2005. It was the really big hot spot in our yeah. uh, area of operation, which was Ramadi. Yep. And, um, and so those guys that I knew who had got killed in Fallujah went through my very building to go home. And so we were there in August of 2005 and we're doing basically watching the guys who are processing um, the remains and we're watching them 
do their work. And if we have questions, we would ask them. And then the following week, we would take over their job and, and they would be available to answer our questions if they needed. So basically, it's kind of graduating into, you know, sliding into this responsibility. And so the very first day we're doing that, we had uh, a U.S. Army major who had got killed in from, he was from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Hmm. And he had came in and we had um, watched them. And it was by no means of disrespect. It was just basically the how it has always been done. These guys had taken a, an American flag straight out of a cardboard box hmm. and placed it on top of this mobile coffin, which is called the transfer case. And so they put it on and then they just basically tied it on with a white cord and that was it. It still had all of its creases. It still had all, you know, from it being in the cardboard box. Yeah, it's brand new. It's brand new. And, and, you know, it still had string on it, you know, from, from all the threads that it might came on, but it was basically not really revered. Um, and of me being me, you can ask any of my, my, my buddies, I overthink things a lot. <laughs> so I was like, you know, how to, I found it that we could do, we could do a, a lot better job than this. Looking back on, on First Lieutenant Jimenez and, you know, Lance Corporal Gray and, and Corporal Amaya and, you know, a bunch of these, bunch of these guys I, I just knew who got killed, mm. um, that if this is the flag that's supposed to go home with them, and this is the flag that's going to be given to their family members yeah, as a token of their service uh, to our nation, they, we needed to treat that flag the best way we possibly could. So I took it upon myself to go down and start buying starch um, over at the PX. Now, you're not supposed to use starch in combat because starch basically will make you glow if you somebody's looking uh, through it, um, infrared. Ah, really? And if, because it's a reflective material. Okay. And so, the, and so you're not supposed to starch uniforms you go out to the field with. Hmm. And so I am... I go down and I buy their only can of starch <laughs> and, and I bought their only iron and talk back in a corner was their only ironing board. And so I go in the middle of Iraq, <laughs> we, have a, we have a PX that's down there. So basically it's, it's covered with dirt and it's been in this area for <laughs> so long because it's yeah. over in Iraq. There's, there's always dust in the air. Yeah. And, and, you know, some days more than others, uh, depends on what kind of weather system you have coming in, but there's always dirt in the air. Hmm. So you have this dust that's, you know, several centimeters thick. And so you basically, I, I took it, wiped it off, carried it up. And, and next day there was two next day after that was four and it just kept on doubling up. And by the time I was getting, you know, like a case and the lady was like, you're in here every day buying starch. What are you doing? <laughs> and, you know, and, and I was like, you know, I work in mortuary affairs. And so it is, I'm ironing and starching all the flags that mm -hmm. we, before we put them onto these transfer cases to send them home. Um, these guys died for all of us. And it would, uh, I want to send them home in the yeah, best yeah. way we could possibly do. You know, I want them to be basically treated as heroes that they are. 
um, they should look their very best because that flag is going to be given to their family members as a token of their service, mm -hmm. as a token of, of, of all the sacrifice. And so that flag needs to be uh, treated as something that's you know, something we can bestow upon a, a hero. Mm -hmm. And so um, I came up with the fold. I came up with all the, uh, the ironing and starching. Long story short, it <laughs> ended up being that it was adopted by all the branches. So if you see anybody coming home nowadays from combat mm -hmm. uh, or from, you know, some, like the remains were brought home from North Korea recently, that's my fold. Um, wow. Guys were brought from Benghazi, uh, that's my fold. The guys who were, um, who are coming home now from Afghanistan, mm -hmm. Um, that is basically my, I started all that back in 2004, uh, came up with a way of, of doing it. And, and it's a little bit of my 15 minutes of fame that will continue on. Nice. So can you tell us what the fold, is that where it's like a triangle or? No, 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 no. So, you know, basically what it is, is instead of just placing an American flag on the transfer case mm -hmm. and hiring a white cord, which everybody can see. Mm -hmm. um, now what I did was that we put the cord on first and then we would take this highly starched flag and then we would tuck in the corners mm -hmm. and we would tuck in the ends and we would pull it taunt. So it was, it was, we, so it basically looks, um, without any flaws. Ah, okay. There's no wrinkles. And in fact, when you walk past it because of that cotton, um, Iron, we ironed it so much that it would actually gleam in the light. So is that on the cover of your book? It is a, on the cover of the book is basically a representation of that, okay. of, a, of a ramp ceremony of taking those remains and putting them on the plane. Um, I do not have the pictures hmm. in my book. I should put one in the book. But um, if you go to my website, you can pull it up. Uh, I believe it is in the first pictures, uh, the picture one. And well, get, which link? It's on my website. It's no ah, pictures to, one. Okay. Right. Yeah. Don't have to do you no greater honor. Uh, yeah. com. If you go there, like halfway down pictures one, mm -hmm. and you'll, you'll see the uh, the evidence of it, you know? Yeah. I, I want to put it in the show notes, maybe on the, on the blog yeah, later. Right yeah. Oh yeah, you got some really cool pictures here. No tougherduty.com and then it's yeah, it's in the links in the top. Pictures number one. Pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. Okay, there we go. There we go. There's there's the fold. There's is that you ironing them? That is me ironing them. That's <laughs> one of the very first folds. That is the ironing board. That is the iron that I bought. <laughs> and, that is uh, so cool. And, and um that was one of the very first ones that I was ironing, trying to figure out how to do it. And so I would make two guys hold it so the flag would not touch the ground. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so what, what happened later on was my guys came up with taking a big board and putting it on these tables mm -hmm. and putting a, um, a blanket on it, uh, one of those uh, itchy yeah. wool, green, you know, those green wool blankets, and then ironing on there. They totally came up with that. And yeah. Better than having three people, two people uh, holding it and me ironing. Yeah. That's kind of sad. The pictures below, those are all filled with um, people, right? Um, the ones that where you have multiple ones in uh, our gym part, 
was yeah. not at the time they were not filled with people. I I do not put anything on there that okay. has people in it. All right, all right. And those what was basically happened. We had a mass casualty yeah. in December of of two thousand and five. We were getting those transfer cases ready for them. Mm -hmm. um, and and we did so those guys were not in those transfer cases. That we we believe it's disrespectful to do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's cool. Totally on the same page with you there. So I think I cut your story off. You were you, oh, you're fine, man. Go ahead. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this was your third tour and you were also in combat, right? Yes, sir. And, uh, you, okay. Your second tour, you got blown up, had your almost killed, uh, major injuries. And then, and then you went back for your third tour. That's commendable. I mean, you could have stopped right there, right? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. but to tell you the truth, I felt like I still had more to give. Yeah. I felt that, um, I felt angry that, that some of the guys that I had known mm -hmm. had, had gotten killed over there. And, yeah. and now it was that we were going back over what well, my guys were going back over uh -huh. from my initial, the invasion of Iraq. And, and I wanted to increase their odds at making out by, yeah. by um, I've had more time in actual combat than they did. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to kind of showcase what had happened and, and push that knowledge out and increase their, their odds of coming back home. That's cool. It's commendable. And then the, this was your third and last tour. Yes. Yes. And then what happened? Um, you know, I thought that my third tour was going to be easy because I was no longer what we would call in the Marine Corps being forward. Um, basically, you know, yeah. my yeah. first two de deployments, I was out there either out, we lived outside the wire or we were so far away in the middle of nowhere that our, our help was an hour and a half away, two hours away. Mm. Um, and now I'm at a big logistical base and with all the amenities that go with it, with basically running water, um, you would, we would have a chow hall with hot food and, you know, we would have mail, all that kind of stuff. And, and I thought that, Hey, this is going to be, you know, an, an easy tour. And it turned out to be the hardest tour. Why that, is that? Because it was emotionally. Mm. Um, you know, after you get blown up, you, I didn't really realize that, but after you get blown up, you come really close to death and now your invincibility bubble has been popped. Mm. And now that you know that you are not invulnerable. That now that you can be killed, um, even though it was always in the back of your mind that you could get hurt, but bad things always happens to the other people, never you. Yeah, and, yeah. And so once you get blown up and you've been put into these situations that I had, uh, that me and my team had been put into on my third deployment, it had really... Uh, taken me for a loop. Um, yeah, it had basically, I was playing chicken with my own 
my own psyche. Um, I wanted to be there to go out on these missions, to go find these guys who got killed. Um, more so for my guys, to mm-hmm. be there for them. Um, not so much of me. I knew that I had this feeling that I wasn't going to come home. Um, but it's, it was something that mm-hmm. I knew that I was going to, I did not like the idea of getting killed, but I knew it was going to be my, my last. So this is maybe, I'm not sure if this is kind of like that philosopher Nietzsche said, you're staring into the abyss and then it stares um, back at you, something like that. I felt like that during my second tour. Oh. You know, because you know, there's, a, there's a, a, a moment there where I wrote about mm-hmm. where we're on the dam because we were working out of a hydroelectric power dam. And you could mm-hmm. see uh, this village a few miles away that was called Dam Village. And it, basically we called it Dam Village because it was a village at the bottom of the dam. Um, and then we would ha- see Haditha, which was further off in the distance. And I remember sitting on or standing on top of that, that dam and looking at all those places off in the distance. And this is where we're going to go. And I felt like you're standing on that abyss, like you had just said. Yeah. And, and the, mo- the way I explained it in that scene was I felt like I was saying like a, a, a Bushido, Bushido warrior code haiku and, you know, the yeah. calm before the storm before we go out you know, and, and expose ourselves to danger. And, you know, I felt it then, but over in, on my third tour, it felt more like I was standing in the water and a riptide was coming. Hmm. I knew I was going to get sucked under and I was terrified of it, but I had my job to do. And I had my job was to be there for my guys. Yeah. So, uh, new question. This, sure, this, absolutely. Thinking about this, was this the worst part of the war or your deployment? Um, the worst part of the war. Um, for me, it was. Yeah. Because um, even though I was exposed to more danger on, on my first and second deployment, um, this was a lot worse one because of the officer that we were working for he made it a, a living hell basically he was the worst guy that i have ever worked for hmm. um and he believed in stressing everybody out and That's dumb. i believe that yeah and i believe that this is a job that you don't need to be stressing people out on. yeah and he didn't see it my way um and i was being brought out so when we got sent on these missions, so what would happen was they would, the bad guys would blow up a, a vehicle, cause a big scene, and you would bring in more people to go out there and recover the remains or be there as in um, your quick reaction forces. Then they would hit us again. So they would, there's a few times where we would have to go outside the wire and, and, and find these chaotic scenes where uh, at the time we thought it was a totally invulnerable vehicle which was uh an m2 bradley um and we had no idea that they figured out how to blow them up and kill all the guys on the inside and this one particular mission that i was thinking of had seven guys get killed and then they brought us out there for this mission and it's a pretty crazy feeling to know that your invulnerability bubble has been popped and you're going out there to go pick up uh 
guys from another scene and they've been killing these vehicles once a week for the last three weeks. Wow. Are the Bradleys the one with the aluminum? Yep. Yep. And that's, that's where we were looking at. Remember what I was saying about we were working off the World War II manuals? Yeah. In, in World War II, they're working with all steel vehicles. So when they got blown up, the remains usually would stay inside of them. Hmm. Um, and what we were seeing by my third deployment was the vehicles would totally melt oh, yeah. and, and case, totally encase some of the guys. And it was the first time we had ever seen it. Nobody has ever told us about it or, you know, prepared us for it. And we had, what were they using? Um, they would take these, I, well, basically these vehicles are made out of, uh, aluminum yeah. and magnesium. And so what the idea was is that you can do, um, you can put these vehicles on, on a big gigantic C5 airplane and fly them over to these hot spots, And all of a sudden you would have armor there to provide security. Um, and, and so that idea, it works great on the drawing board, <laughs> but, but it has a flat bottom, which is just a few inches off the ground. Oh. And, and so you got all these, now you're taking all these high explosive artillery shells and you're putting them all in one gigantic pile. And then you start putting them with, with different kinds of like gasoline and all this other kind of stuff and, you know, into this big pile. And then when you drive a vehicle like that on top of something with that much force, you're going to pop that vehicle. Wow. And so. It sounds like a death trap. It was. It was. And, and uh, yeah, it was something that I, of course, I did not prepare my swimming well, Who knew? We were, we were seeing the cutting edge of, of, of hostilities of, of the war, you know, as it was changing week to week in front of us. So it was something that was totally crazy. And, um, yeah, I did not prepare myself psychologically for that. You know, as much as you try and, and, and you put yourself out there and I just kind of felt like that I was going through so much stress mm-hmm. between my, my command mm-hmm. and being and and that want that drive to be the best staff non-commissioned officer I could be for my guys um, and putting myself in these situations. I was going through so much stress. I literally felt like my heart was going to pop. Wow. Um, And, but I knew that I wanted to be the guy who was leading from the front. I would, I felt like I was going to, I would not shirk from my duties. Mm -hmm. No, what was that? (laughs) <laughs> no, that was my email. I'm sorry. Okay. Scared uh, me. My email popping up. I, you I got me all wrapped up in <laughs> aluminum Bradley fighting vehicle death traps. Now yeah, you're looking at me. Um, yeah, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. No problem. So, yes. Anyways, that's some pretty heavy stuff. So, this is your third tour and you're feeling the emotional weight. So, then you... Right. You got the idea to write the book from a Vietnam vet or you went home first or tell us about that. I came home um, after that tour, uh, had a lot of uh, experiences that I I just didn't know how to communicate. Um, But basically the the easiest way that I could really describe what combat is to somebody is that it, um, because the the movies get it wrong, uh, the news gets it wrong. the easiest way I can describe it to anybody is it is totally foreign to anything that you've ever seen or ever. It's kind of like describing a color to a person who's never, who can't see. 
yeah. uh, a blind person. It, 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 it is its own thing. It's a total, uh, all your senses kind of a thing. You taste it, you feel it, you know, you smell it, you're in it, you know. Um, and so I couldn't shut it off. Mm-hmm. I tried to go back home and, and, and deliver mail again. And so I was walking down the street and I always felt like a vehicle was always going to blow up. Hmm. Um, and then I would, I'm sorry about that. I don't know <laughs> how to shut that thing off without, without shutting you off. No, <laughs> so. That's okay. so did you have a PTSD? I had, I had severe post-traumatic stress disorder. I believe um, it. It felt like that it was, it was on my mind. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, no rest, no reprieve from it. Um, it was there during the daytime. My mind would click off and I would literally, my mind would, I would be back in Iraq walking, you know, down, you know, down a dusty trail in, in the middle of a city over there. And next thing I know, I would come to and my mind, I'm like, wait a minute. I just stopped delivering mail like two or three blocks ago. And yeah, I would just be walking. And so I had to turn around and, and deliver them. And that would happen a lot. Or I would drive and my mind would click off. And next thing I know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, I'm, I kind of come to and I'm like, wait a minute, where am I? I have no idea where I'm at. Didn't you get uh, help? I mean, don't they have an out-processing system or something? I, I, being a reservist, you basically get what we call demoed. You're de- demobilized. Hmm. And, and so uh, you just kind of literally from – You'll, one day you'll be out there on combat. Six weeks later, you're at your job. You know, oh, that's and, crazy. And that's how I happened. That's what happened to me. I, I, whenever I dreamed at night, I would it would be there. I, I looked at food as being human. Oh yeah. You know, and so uh, <laughs> this is kind of a funny story. <laughs> I came home, and and my wife, you know, wanted to fix dinner, so she fixed ribs and and she so it was winter time and stuff so she fixed ribs in the oven and totally forgot about them Mm-mm. and she pulled them out and they looked like some of the guys that we had processed some of the oh, guys yeah, were yeah. up and and the bones would basically crumble in your hands and i could not get my mind off of associating food with those situations what did you do so, um, I think we ended up going out that night instead. Oh, oh I, thought it was, I thought you were going to blow up or wig out or tear no, the house no, apart. Um, you know, that, you know, you just kind of laugh at it and you go. But there was, there was times where I would wig out and then I would just, we would go to a, a cookout and my sister-in-law was burning the chicken. Mm-hmm. And all the all the, the the skin on the chicken, you know, curl up and turn black and all that kind of stuff. And she, um I couldn't handle it. And so I started bawling my eyes out. And basically, you know, I'm not trying to make myself sound crazy. No, no, no. Um, I'm just saying I was going through all these where I could, could not get it off of my mind. Yeah. Um, and so I, I decided to uh, go through therapy. I was going through therapy five days a week um, in the very beginning. Um, I decided to quit my job and I, I just left the post office. I just basically quit. I was basically preparing myself to die. I couldn't see past, you know, the next night. I really did. I didn't even trust myself from making stupid decisions. 
So, <clears throat> in one of my long fits of drinking a lot from back then, that's the only way I know how to <clears throat> how to handle my my anxieties was to suppress it with trying to drink as much as I possibly could. And I would hope that I would be able to suppress my dreaming. Um, then I would find out that it's kind of a crapshoot because sometimes you do, most times you don't. Um, now you're drunk and now you're staring down, you know, you, you, your own fears and your own experiences. And so um, I, I was over at the VFW and I was talking to a veteran who was a vet Vietnam War veteran. And he was like, I know what you need. I'm like, yeah, what do you, what do you, another beer? And, and so, <laughs> uh, no, you need to start writing. And I, at first I thought it was hokey. He goes, yeah. it helped me out. It helped me stretch things out in my head and trying to, you know, come to terms with things. <clears throat> and so I, I dismissed it. And after a long uh, couple months afterwards, I decided, what the hell, you know, just give it a shot. Um, I have nothing else to lose. I, I left my job um, and I had basically no future. Hmm. And I call myself an accidental author because mm -hmm. I, I was just trying to, trying to make sense of all the stuff that had happened. I went to combat for three tours in three years. Um, that's all I knew. And I, and, and I was totally a stranger in my own home. I couldn't convey what it was like to be there to my wife, uh, my coworkers, um, you know, and so I felt like I was trapped. So I, I started writing. Right. And at first, my writing really sucked. Um, I barely passed high school English. So it was <laughs> something that I decided, you know, to basically just try to pour my guts out it and try to deal with. And what I was doing, I was taking those, those things, and I was taking the advice of that Vietnam War veteran, and I would go over and start a bonfire hmm. and, and burn the uh the the script or, or the, the 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 chapter what i just wrote yeah. so and he told you to write a book and then burn it so basically i, I wasn't trying to write the book back then and but uh, i kept everything on my computer i would just okay. print it up and have my own little goodbye ceremonies on my side yard and and i would just burn it and basically get drunk and and then next day i would start writing all over again and what I did not know that I was doing is actually a, a technique they use in, in mental health. They yeah. call it journaling. And I was doing it and, and I was getting better at writing and I would take those and bring it into my therapy sessions and I would sit there. I would bring up a lot more detail when I was drunk than I would, what I would care to admit to when I was sitting in front of, you know, my therapist for an hour, hour and a half. Yeah. yeah. So it was helping me out and I was finding I was gaining strength uh, and from those situations. I totally believed it helped save my marriage. Um, now trying those, those situations that I could no longer, I couldn't tell anybody, um, you know, this describing that color to a blind person. Now my wife could pick up that situation and, and put herself in those situations. And, and it gave her a better understanding of what had happened and gave her a better idea of, of how I felt about it mm -hmm. and, and why it still bothers me. 
Yeah. And it's called journaling or writing is therapy. It's called journaling. Um, uh -huh. okay. I had no idea it was, I was just basically just at my wits end. And mm -hmm. it was the only thing that felt like it was giving me any kind of resolution. Yeah. And then you decided to put it in a book. Right. Um, I got to a point where I wrote the same 13 stories for, mm -hmm. for many, many years, mm -hmm. about four and a half years. Oh, I would say probably around closer to three and a half, maybe closer to four years. And then um, some people would go to a place and they're like, hey, what do you do for a living? And I'm sorry about that, man. <laughs> it's okay. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do for a living? And, and I would say, uh, oh, I'm writing a book. And, and it kind of stuck with me. I barely passed high school English. You know, why not try to? Nobody's ever wrote a book about, in detail, about what I did. There's a, a, another uh, Marine who wrote one called Shaded Black. Mm -hmm. I don't think she goes nowhere near into the, to the descriptions or, or the situations like I had. Yeah. Uh, um, my book was about solely the job itself as over there and, and not how so much of, uh, well, anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I decided why not? Nobody else has ever written about it. And it would be a, a shame that if there was another conflict, another 50 years from now, that my, the lessons that we learned, my experiences wasn't passed down to help those guys out. Yeah. Um, it would be a shame to not have this story of how we honored our fallen shared yeah. with the families of the, our friends who were killed over there. Um, it, you know, yes, it, it, it it's a, a, a terrible to lose somebody in war, mm -hmm. you know, but I would want to bring, let those families know that we, we, we did our best to honor them. Yeah. We were the ones who were willing to die to make sure that they were brought home with honor. Um, and we wanted to be able to demonstrate to our, um, to their families that how much that they had meant to us, that we were willing yeah. to go through all this trouble. So um, I decided why not? Uh, so I published it in uh, July of 2017, and I decided to do it by self-publishing because cool. I still feel responsible yeah. for preserving the, their honor yeah. and preserving their memory. And I didn't want my manuscript to go to some big wig at some... Exactly. You know, and then say, we know what sells books and you don't. So we, yeah. it, you know, and it's not, this is not what the book is about. Yeah. The, yeah. It would be awesome to one day be successful author and, you know, have a million dollars and all that kind of stuff. But <laughs> the, the idea of, of the book, the initial premise of the book was for me to find healing. Yeah. To be an example for other veterans and not necessarily other veterans too. This is about my traumatic experiences, but also to, 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 to talk about with other guys, other people who may have been in a car accident or they had a loved one pass away or, uh, you know, dealing with those experiences that really kind of take control of your life. Yeah. And so I want to be able to 
share with other people like this helped me gain control. I can't say that I'm over it at all by any stretch of the means, Mm -hmm. but I could say that I'm no longer so fragile where I would totally lose everything. And, uh, you know, I could at least talk to Mm -hmm. people about, you know, what had happened instead of have it totally consume my life. Um, and, And it's basically changed my mission. I'm no longer trying to find salvation on the bottom of a bottle. <laughs> you know, That's it, good. I'm trying to, my mission now is, is to, you know, to tell a little bit about a story that nobody knows about um, and honor those who gave their lives for all of yeah. us. That's awesome. How long did it take to write the book? Four and a half years, man. Yeah. Well, you got some awesome awards. You're yes, award-winning. Yes. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I tell you that I wish my dad was still around ah. because yeah. um, my dad being a Vietnam War veteran, he ended up passing away uh, from cancer, which we had no idea that he hmm. had. And um, when we used to go to work together, he ended up saying, you know, hey, you know, I notice that you're always staring off. You're always looking, you know, staring off and, and you're lost in your thoughts. He knew exactly what I was going through. And so I, I decided, you know, I told him, dad, I, I'm all right. I'm not, I just didn't want to tell him about those situations. So he passed away in 2011 and I ended up writing this book as if I was talking to him and mm-hmm. telling him, you know, and I would imagine how, you know, telling him, admitting uh, what all my stuff was to him because he always wanted to know. That's cool. And so to, um, to, to also honor my dad and kind of in my own mind, yeah, not being the guy who almost failed high school, flunked out of high school, I wanted to be that guy that who did so well that now he's being praised by some of the stuff that uh, and so now I did. I put it in for several awards, uh, and I'm I'm getting those. Um, I became a finalist in the uh, Reader's Favorite Award. Became a finalist in the Next Generation uh, uh, Indie Awards. Um, let's see here. I took first place in the uh, Independent Authors Network. Yeah, and got the Indie Brag Medallion. Cool. Yeah. And yeah, so I've got a few more. Uh, it's yeah. up for the Hoffer, Eric Hoffer Award right now. I find oh, out, nice. hopefully. And the, the Chanticleer, um, I've already been named as a, a semifinalist. And at the end of this month is when I find out how far it actually has, has gotten in, in, in their process. Nice. So yeah. It's, it's awesome. It is very awesome. And I could say that it's truly humbling. Yeah. Um, that this whole experience of writing, and not only, uh, you know, I truly believe it saved my marriage. It's, it's helped save my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it's something that I could continue to give back to yeah. other folks yeah. who, who live this life. Because some, maybe, some other veterans could, could uh, pick it up and mm-hmm. they could read it and they could say that his, that person's experience may not be 100% like that person's. But now they can say that, hey, this situation is a lot like it. So now that they have something they can pass on to yeah, their yeah. families, 
and say, my experience is this is how I felt about that. Yeah, that's you know, uh, maybe I can help save their marriage and maybe I can help save their lives as well by putting mine online. That's a really meaningful book. I think that's why it's winning all the awards too. Right. And, yeah. and, and that's my vehicle to get it noticed is to get it uh, yeah. all these awards and it makes me feel really awesome. That's awesome. That is. And you self publish it. That's what's even more awesome. If you went the traditional publishing route, you wouldn't, well, you would probably be waiting. So if you got accepted somewhere, it would take years for them to publish it. And then you, you know, so I, I think that's awesome that you self published it too, you know, and, uh, and, uh, that, oh, go ahead. Okay. What about the cover? Who did the cover? It's a really cool cover uh, too. What it was, was it was a picture from, um, the, some of the Marines that were back here who, who ended up doing mortuary fairs outside of DC where they were having a, a, uh, whatchamacallit, they were teamed up with the army and they were doing these training. And so, um, they took a picture and, and, they had that of, of practicing of the ramp ceremonies. And then I took that picture and had it altered and, you know, done up and I, I sent it to a place out of Sweden mm -hmm. and they, they drew it up and made it into what it is. And we put, used that as, as the cover. That's and true. there was no other picture that was out there that I could come up with that really explained what, the whole story is behind the reason why the cover is in black and white and and the the guy the casket the uh and the transfer case is in color is because that is who oh, oh i'm sorry oh what kind my of dog, dog is that my dogs <laughs> <laughs> the ones that matter yeah are the one that's inside the transfer case yeah not not the one the ones of us are doing the job that we are there to honor the person not the rest of us yep i like it i love it it's this is probably the most meaningful book and meaningful interview i've done so i'm i'm honored thank you very much thank you. i'm very honored that uh, you asked me to do this interview this is okay awesome. let's have some more heavy questions then sure yeah absolutely go for it if you could do it again would you and what would you do differently I think that I no longer have the emotional cushion to do this job again. Oh, I put everything that I had to take care of the fallen. Um, I, I think that I would be honored to serve again in some capacity, some function, some way of sharing my experiences and that's when what how i i kind of look at my my book is me trying to prepare other people um but i don't have it in me to do mortuary affairs ever again hmm. um i left everything out there on that battlefield you know um, yeah. emotionally and i don't think that my what's important to me now not not to say that the job isn't important you know, where when you come home and you shift gears and you shift what's important in your life, mm -hmm. now I'm, I'm so focused on trying to be a good husband and trying to be a good father and mm -hmm. stuff. It took me years to get to this point. Yeah. Um, so, and I would feel that if I ever did mortuary affairs again, 
that I would totally lose it all. Hmm. You're a Marine, man. Yes, sir. You ain't going to lose it. <laughs> anyway, sorry about that. Uh, so <laughs> a minute ago, I asked you about the worst part of the war. Was there a best part or what's the best thing you got out of all of this? Camaraderie. Right on. It is camaraderie. It was something where I'm with a bunch of guys who laid everything on the line. That was the days that, you know, how you can look back when, you, you know, you got guys who play football. They look back on the days when they did that and they were like, that's the best I ever, you know, ever was, you know, and being a part of a winning team, yeah. you know, or when I was in college and I did this or when I was on this awesome, you know, group of guys who were on this, you know, this business deal. That was the best I'll ever be. And and I look back on on all my experiences and, and those group of guys that I was who risked everything to do to, to bring guys home, to give other people a sense of closure. Um yep. those that was the best part of my experience. Sorry about <laughs> that, man. I'm sorry. But uh, yeah, it was the best part about my experience. Um, yeah. um cool. even though that we we know very easily that we would die we could we could it was a very real possibility that we wouldn't come, be coming home but we're there for each other and mm -hmm. so you become tighter than a lot of family members are and and i can honestly say that i'm a 44 year old man mm -hmm. who's unashamed to tell another man that i love him right on we've been there we've you know and and it, we've been there we've done that and it, i have grown in so many different ways um that i thought that if i had never went to war i wouldn't see life in this light i am much more appreciative of things than i what i used to be yeah uh, you know going down to having ice in your glass and drinking cold water clean water yeah we're know. amazingly spoiled aren't we um yes you know in some ways <laughs> yes you know and you don't really realize how much we are until you've been put into those situations yeah and how precious life is yeah um in the, in the same token all right well i respect your time but i've got two more for you my friend yeah absolutely go ahead i, I have all day my friend okay what's your number one tip or advice for vets for veterans um, yeah. You are not alone. You are mm -hmm. never alone. I'm talking to the guys who, who come home and they feel that, that nobody gets them and that, yeah. they feel that uh, they're totally disconnected from everything. Now they feel like that they're helpless and, and stuff. My number one thing is, is that there's always people who care. Um, and even though it's hard to see with when, when, you're staring down that bottle and stuff. Um, there's all, there's a group of people. Most of us will understand who's been there because we've been through there ourselves. And I think the number one thing has helped me out along with some of the therapies and stuff like that is writing journaling. Don't be afraid to write. Yeah. Uh, I think that there's healing and, and, and good living those some of the experiences, you know, and, and I, I think that those veterans, need to get moved from being a point of not having those experiences 
define you as being a bad guy, mm-hmm. but have those experiences as define you as being uh, an honorable man, an honorable soldier. And because you know, to me, the hardest thing for me to do when I came home is to believe that I was a good person. Really? After listening, yeah. After being a part of those scenes, so much death, so much hurt. And, and, you know, I felt guilty for, for knowing something that the families of the fallen, you know, didn't know of Mm -hmm. knowing this person is dead and you going through their pockets and seeing their photos of their kids and, um, you know, stuff like that. And, and, and I felt that when I came home that I could never be forgiven for knowing all that stuff and being, you know. And so, and I think that those guys who, who come back home, I think that they, they need to believe that there is uh, light at the end of that tunnel. Awesome. So guilt is a big problem. Uh, huge, huge. How, do you, how did you deal with it? I think in a lot of ways, I still deal with it. You know, yeah. um, it's something that never, because you know, the funny thing about guilt it doesn't have to work in the realm of, of logic. Mm-hmm. You know, guilt can all, always take shape into a different form where you always say to yourself, I should have been faster. I should have been stronger. I should have um, known, you know, even though in reality we are, you know, we are left to our own kind of limitations. And, and those, that guilt makes it where we should have been better to, to save someone's life or to, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and yeah, guilt, it's a tough, tough, tough thing. And I think I want to convey that people can find redemption at the end of it. Awesome. Well, I love your book. I love your message. Super (laughs) meaningful. And, uh, well, I mean it, man. I got it. So, you know, I've been reading it too. And I've been watching your videos and uh, uh, pretty damn awesome, my friend. I'm hoping that that it'll get out there and and people will pick it up and, um, and, you know, and and spread the word. I'm self-published. So it means I have a, a marketing department of me and, and, uh, with zero dollars. Okay, well, tell us where to reach you online. And uh, yeah, the book can be sold; it can be found on Amazon and yeah. on Kindle, and as well as on Audible. Okay. Um, the person who was on Audible is a Audi-winning, multiple uh, award-winning uh, narrator, John uh, Pruden, and he's done like American Sniper and over oh, two. Wow. So yeah, he's a big guy, and yeah. uh, I, I'm I'm proud to say that uh, we are friends. He's cool. a pretty great guy, and. Um, as well as you can go to notougherduty.com and you can keep up with me. Um, I have a Facebook page, No Tougher Duty, No Greater Honor, um, um, as well as uh, Instagram, No Tougher Duty, uh, No Tougher Duty on Twitter as well. So come out and see me somewhere. I try to do library visits um, and I try to get out there as much. If, if people want me to come out and speak to their groups, uh, I would definitely try to make it out there to them. Right on. And where do we reach you for that? Um, you can go send me a message through notougherduty.com. I have an area where you can, uh, down on the very bottom, you can just click that little uh, icon down there and send me a, uh, uh, an email. 
That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I've been watching your videos on YouTube, and uh, that's an excellent, excellent deal. Some public speaking there. Yeah, yeah. How did you, so uh, tangent here, uh, where did you learn public speaking? I learned it in the Marine Corps. Nice. Okay. Uh, I ended up, uh, I was an instructor before the war started. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they found out that there was only 37 of us in the entire Marine Corps that knew how to do that school trained mortuary affairs guys. So mm-hmm. we had to take this World War II manual and crunch it down into something that was applicable to the way that we were going to be fighting. Um, and so we trained two companies in uh, one in uh, Marietta, Georgia, and one in Anacostial Navy Yards in Washington, D.C. And we trained those guys up. You know, hmm. before we head over, and those were basically our relief uh, before we headed over, <clears throat> and we did the first initial four to five weeks of the war, um, and then we got rotated down, and those guys took our place. So I, I learned how to do a crash course of basically standing in front of a crowd with that, and it was something that I always had a knack to doing. It's really, they say that public people are more afraid of public speaking uh, than death itself. Um, I think uh, death is uh, <laughs> scarier than in front of people. <laughs> I got to tell you that from from uh, firsthand experience. Well, we we got it straight from you, so I yeah, <laughs> definitely, man. But yeah, absolutely, man. Um, I I feel pretty comfortable standing in front of a of a group of people and, cool. and talking, um, especially with something that I feel so passionate about. You know, yeah. it's not like I'm trying to. Sh- trying to explain how underwater basket weaving is. I mean, I can understand <laughs> then I can, uh, I can see how that's going to be rough, but yeah. I'm telling people about a story that nobody else really ever's ever thought of. Nope. And I think, I think it's an important story that needs to be shared after almost 18 years of war and uh, Memorial day coming up. And, and I think it's something that the world needs to understand that, the level of sacrifice people know the sacrifice on the front end you know that people go over and they die for war but people don't know the other half of the story after after the battle is over and what the group of people are willing to do to make sure that those guys get home to their families and when we work for the families yeah sorry Oh, no, 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 you're all right. But you're, are you also the guys that um, give the flag to the family? Um, I've done that, but in the book, it is not, I don't talk about that. Now, that is done for, like, over here in Ohio, if, if a Marine had, had gotten killed in Afghanistan, and he's one of the local, it would usually be a local unit. Um, and particularly, it would be a reserve unit. So around Dayton, Ohio, would be my guys, that my old, my old company they would uh, they would get the the order to go and and do perform this mission and let let them know that your loved one is now deceased and they do the ceremonies and all that kind of stuff so but i I used to do literally hundreds of them when when i first joined that unit and um yep but i don't talk about that's how, how do you how do you prepare yourself for that you know to me, in, in the very beginning, before the war, like during, during the 90s, I looked at it as my way of honoring those who came before us. Yeah. I yeah. looked at it as, as um, you know, um, trying to put on the uniform and try to be a 
that representation of the Marines in the public eye. And I found that, I know, it was a very honorable and I loved doing it. Now, when I came home after the war and then they had me do that mission, mm-hmm. it, was a to- it was totally different. Um, you know, because now I know the guys that we were handling um, were our guys and now having an emotional connection to those. And I found after doing several of them, I couldn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. It was part of my, uh, at the beginning, I was in denial about the PTSD and I didn't know how bad I had it. Yeah. And I just couldn't do it. Hmm. Well, well, you know, this is really interesting using books and writing to heal. Yep. And uh, it looks like it's working. And um, yeah, it, it makes me feel great to know that something that I felt that I, it was such a too, so terrible to talk about and to share, to find that it's bringing peace to other people. Yeah. And answering that question to, you know, to a lot of the gold star families out there who wondered how their loved ones were handled and how they were treated. Yeah. After, after they had, had uh, become deceased. Have you heard of um, Jordan Peterson's writing program? He has a, a, a program to write, to heal kind of too. I forgot what it's called. Hmm? I have not. Yeah, it's a, uh, might be worth it. Um, it's the same concept. But I think it's more directed for, well, people to get their life in, in line, but more maybe younger people in college. I'm not sure. Um, uh, it might I be worth a try. I find that there is healing and, and bringing those, those thoughts out yeah. on the paper, you know, and, and being able to see them. It, it becomes something that, for me, it was something that I, I was able to think about and really try to diagnose and I want to say diagnose is trying to sit there and digest what had yeah, happened, yeah. you know, and, and I, I totally believe if I didn't do it, I wouldn't be here. Interesting. So yeah, it's called self authoring and uh, sounds like exactly like what you did. Yep. Yep. Pretty uh, I have to definitely check it out. Yeah. Well, just, something to mention there i mean i mean because this guy's you know he's he's a big uh psychologist um clinical psychiatrist uh and in, in, uh, teaching in university so it seems to be pretty legit stuff but yeah, anyways I mean, back to you my friend. because yeah. i could honestly say that it worked for me yeah awesome all right then tougher no tougher duty.com yes sir thank you very much for your time well, thank you for your you calling me up from Germany. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, let me tell you, uh, I really enjoyed it. And um, next time, uh, turn off them damn notifications on your. Yeah, I got to figure out how to do that, my friend. Okay, <laughs> I enjoyed it. I'm, I'm, I want to reserve you for a follow up. Absolutely, that would be fantastic. All right, man. Take it easy. All right. Take care. Okay, my friends, if you like that podcast, then remember to go to zbooks.co and go get all the materials to start your authoring career. We have a seven-day challenge every week, so there's no excuse to not finish your book. And remember, please go to iTunes and upload this podcast and Google Play. Okay, I look forward to seeing you at the top.